even before the launch of the Hubble telescope in 1990, scientists were asking the question, what's the next step after Hubble? Since the early 90s, scientists and engineers have been working on what that next step would be. And on December 25th, 2021, at 7.20 a.m., NASA's James Webb Space Telescope launched from Europe's spaceport in French Guiana, South America, on an Ariane 5 rocket. The James Webb Space Telescope is a space telescope currently conducting infrared astronomy. It's one of the largest optical telescopes in space. It is the largest. And it's equipped with high-resolution, high-sensitivity instruments, allowing it to view objects too old and too distant or faint for the Hubble telescope. This enables investigations across many fields of astronomy and cosmology, such as observations of the first stars and the formation of the first galaxies, a detailed atmospheric characterization of potentially habitable exoplanets. The uh, James Webb Telescope has uh, four goals, primary goals. The four goals are to search for light from the first stars and galaxies that formed in the universe after the Big Bang. The second goal is to study galaxy formation and the evolution of galaxies. The third goal is to understand star formation and planet formation. And the fourth is to study planetary systems and origins of life. Webb's primary mirror consists of 18 hexagonal mirror segments. You can see them here. And they're made up of gold-plated beryllium, which combine for a, a six-and-a-half-meter diameter mirror compared to the Hubble telescope's 2.4-meter diameter. This gives Webb a light-collecting area of about 25 square feet compared to that of Hubble, six times bigger than Hubble's um, square footage. Unlike Hubble, which observes the near-ultraviolet and invisible and near-infrared, Webb observes a lower frequency range from long-wavelength visible light through mid-infrared. In other words, the telescope, uh, this is meaningless to 99% of you, but most, if there's one person in the room who's like nerding out right now, right? You know, you, yeah, you're like, oh, yeah, I love this stuff. <laughs> in other words, the telescope, this telescope, it allows us to see that which we've never been able to see before. And things that we can't see with the naked eye, because our eyes actually can't pick up certain light signatures. And more interestingly, what this telescope allows us to do is to see further back in time by hundreds of millions of years. You should watch a video on it. There's a reason for that, something to do with light and it travels at a certain speed. And so what we see an image of today is actually something that existed a long time ago. And we don't know and won't know for maybe millions of years if that star has exploded yet. It's just measuring time and light and stuff, right? Right? Am I right? Is this right? Okay, good. One of the unique features of the telescope is where it's observing from. You see the Earth here and the Moon. Um, where the Hubble is, is about 550, 570 kilometers off of Earth's surface. Um, the Webb telescope is 1.5 million kilometers away from Earth. And what that allows it to do is obviously get way further away from our orbit and further away from the sun so that it can actually pick things up with more uh, clarity. The cost of this mission over the last few decades and ongoing cost is uh, the total of $10 billion in US dollars. 
That's just the start of this one, the cost of this one. Now, you might be thinking, man, we could do a lot of good with $10 billion. Why are we just taking pictures of space? That's a side note, but that's the reality. There's been a lot of money, a lot of time, the smartest people in the world in this field working on this. And uh, July 2022, we got our first images back from the Hubble telescope. I think most of you guys have seen these online circulated on social media, through the news. It was a spectacular moment a year ago when we got to witness these. I'll show you a few of them. Uh, the first image that we have here is called the Carina Nebula. This is a landscape of mountains and valleys, or looks like a landscape of mountains and valleys, speckled with glittering stars. It's actually the nearby uh, young star-forming region called NGC 3324. And uh, what we can see here is something we've never actually seen before taken a picture of. What you see is, they call them cosmic cliffs. Webb's seemingly three-dimensional picture looks like craggy mountains on a moonlit evening. In reality, it's the edge of a giant gaseous, uh, gaseous cavity. And the tallest peaks in this image are about seven light years high. So compared to the lowest peaks, the tallest peaks are seven light years. <laughs> I don't know how tall a light year is, but I think it's pretty tall, right? <laughs> I'm six foot four and a half, and that's pretty tall. It's amazing. The second image um, that you've probably all seen, this is a cropped-in version of it, but this is called the SMAX 0723, or SAMCS. NASA's James Webb Space Telescope has produced the deepest and sharpest infrared image of the distant universe to date. Known as Webb's first deep field, this image of galaxy clusters is overflowing with detail. Thousands of galaxies, including the faintest objects ever observed in the infrared. This slice of the vast universe covers a patch of sky approximately the size of grain of sand in your hand held at arm's length. So everyone hold your arm out. Hold your arm out. Everyone hold your arm out. Okay, now imagine you have a grain of sand. Take a little grain of sand, just fit it between your two fingers. This image is about that, the equivalent of that in the sky. So if you were like, look through that tiny little grain of sand, that's the area of the skies that it's covering, right? That's what that is, right? Just a, it's like a pinpoint, like a needle, kind of a needle. And then image number three, um, Stefan's Quintet. I only have three of them here, actually. There's a few more I zoomed in on this one, so maybe this is the triplet, but there's actually a quintet is what is uh, this image. This is, this is a spectacular image. It's a grouping of five galaxies, best known for being prominently featured in the holiday classic film It's a Wonderful Life. Today, NASA's James Webb Telescope reveals Stephen's Quintet in a new light. This enormous mosaic is Webb's largest image to date, covering about one-fifth of the moon's diameter. It contains over 150 million pixels. So Daniel, the media guy, understands that that's a lot of pixels, right? It's the um, combination of a thousand different images pieced together is what we get when we see here. It's just spectacular detail, seeing the universe in a way we've never seen before. With his powerful infrared vision and highly, uh, extremely high spatial resolution, Webb shows never be seen before details in this galaxy group. So we've known it existed, but we've never been able to see the details that we can see today. It's just, it's spectacular. It's so dramatic. It looks fake, like it looks computer rendered. And I'm sure you can find a YouTube video that convinces you that this is just AI, somebody created this, none of this is real. But $10 billion of expenses, taxpayer dollars mostly, tells me it's probably legit, right? It's magnificent. 
Now check this out. This gets scary. This makes me feel, oh man, weird. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, we're all familiar with this galaxy. We all believe that we are part of this galaxy, that our solar system is a part of this galaxy. We've known this for a long time. If you took our galaxy and you shrunk it down to the size of North America, so throw the galaxy over top there. Let's say it shrunk down to the size of North America. Okay? Our solar system, the moon and the star, the, the one star, the sun that we have, and the eight plus one planet, sorry Pluto, that we have in our solar system, would fit, if this was the size of our galaxy, would fit into this coffee cup. But not that coffee cup, actually. This coffee cup. So the Milky Way galaxy, the one that we're a part of, our solar system would fit in this cup if you shrunk it down to the size of North America. That makes me feel really small, doesn't it? We can't even comprehend this, right? You just can't even make sense of it. It can't compute. We're not made to be able to compute and make sense of these realities, these dimensions, the vastness and the smallness. It doesn't make real sense to us because we just can't see and understand as a finite individual. Psalm 19, it says this. You've all known this verse for a long time, I think, or most of you. It says this, The heaven declare the glories of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge goes on to say that they have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. And the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing to the soul. And the psalm goes on, that's Psalm 19, in case you're wondering. I like Eugene Peterson's rendering of this in the message version. He says, God's glory is on tour in the skies. God craft on exhibit across the horizon. Madame Day holds classes every morning. Professor Knight lectures each evening. I love that. Their words aren't heard, their voices aren't recorded, but their silence fills the earth. Unspoken truth is spoken everywhere. Tyler Staten, in his book, Pray Like Monks, Live Like Fools, he says that prayer starts with seeing, not speaking. Prayer starts with seeing, not speaking. Karl Barth, famous theologian, says to know God means to stand in awe of him and to be still in the presence of him that dwelleth in light unapproachable. We start thinking about the space telescope. We start thinking light unapproachable, my goodness. Evan Pilkington in his book, Learning How to Pray, says that prayer is a voyage of discovery. It's beautiful. And Pete Gregg in his book on how to pray, he says this, the best way to start praying is to actually stop praying, to stop talking at God long enough to focus on the wonder of who he actually is, to be still before the Lord and patiently wait for him. Pete Gray goes on to say, moments of stillness at the beginning of prayer are moments of surrender in which we stop competing with God. We relinquish our Messiah complexes. We resign from trying to save the planet 
We stop expecting everyone and everything else to orbit our preferences. We recenter our priorities on the Lord and acknowledge with a sigh of relief that he is in control. This morning, what I want us to focus on is prayer as wonder. Prayer as wonder. And I want to introduce you to the concept of centering prayer if you haven't been introduced before. In preparation this week, I had a memory come back to me. I was lying in bed, and this, this memory flooded my mind of a time when Ashton and I were earlier on in our marriage. We, we booked a rustic cabin, because that's what the cool hipsters did on Airbnb, and went out to like, this really remote place. Like, the nerves of like, feeling like someone is going to murder you is part of the enjoyment of the actual experience, Right? It's like one of those kind of places where you're like, this is on someone's property, but they're not here, and no one's around, and there's no service, and this is the place. Kind of looked like this. At the beginning of our time together, it actually started out pretty rough, as goes in marriage, especially earlier on. You don't really recall the tension or the reason for the tension, the point of the tension or the conflict, but you do remember the feelings, don't you? You remember the pain. You remember feeling helpless. I remember feeling lonely as we were fighting, we were having just this dramatic, like, emotional, like, battle with each other. I can recall back and just feeling emotionally fatigued and sad. This is a bad one. This is one of those ones that I th- we probably both thought, I don't know what Ashton thought, but I thought, who in the world are we? Like, who, what is happening here? What's this, this mess? This is not what I read in books about marriage. This is, this is not who I thought I was. This is not who I thought she was. It was one of those kind of ones. And it was one of those fights that felt like there's, not, like there's, not coming, there's no coming back from this. This was like a wound that's going to stay open for a long time. And it's one of those fights, right? You guys who are married people, you know this. And I don't recall many details about this particular bout, but, and I, well, and I also don't know how we ended up getting here, but we did get to this place where we were standing out in the middle of the night by this water. You could hear water trickling in the background. There's a little bit of river somewhere nearby. I don't even know if we were like standing close to each other or standing apart from each other, but the night sky looked almost like this. Like it was so clear. It was so vivid. It was so bright. You could actually see stars that we can't see here in the GTA. And I remember just looking up in the sky and just being amazed by it. And then we started seeing shooting stars. And you know, like they come in the blink of an eye. But the second you see one, you just can't take your focus off the sky, right? You've, you've had those situations where you're just standing there looking up, and you're like, i got to catch another one. i got to catch another one. And you're like, what? It's just a blink of an eye. It's a tiny flash in the sky, but there's something so amazing about it, right? And I remember just like standing there staring, feeling like so small and so like inadequate and so powerless. But then from that place, somehow... And I don't recall how we were able to go back in the cabin, put on some dance music, and dance. (laughs) I think we had a glass of wine, and we were dancing. Do you remember that? You remember that, right? (laughs) I don't remember what it was. It was like one of those, like, gosh, what the heck? What's the point, you know? We're standing there in awe, and we're witnessing all this, and it just felt like there was like this all that crap doesn't matter that much feeling, you know? Like, what could we possibly have to be fighting about? We felt vulnerable, but then I also remember feeling like a deep sense of gratitude. Like, the fact that somehow we were able to get to 
a glass of wine and dancing in this cabin all alone. Like, it was like this gratitude, like this love, like, man, it's all right, you know? I remember feeling that. There's like the deep appreciation. The sky, it does that to us, doesn't it? The sky does that to us. It somehow has the power to remind us of the most basic truths in its own way, without saying anything like the psalmist says, right? Just reminds us of that. Richard Foster, he says this on prayer. He says, the truth of the matter is we all come to prayer with a tangled mess of motives, altruistic and selfish, merciful and hateful, loving and bitter. Frankly, this side of eternity will never unravel the good from the bad, the pure from the impure. But what I have come to see is that God is big enough to receive us with all of our mixture. We don't have to be bright or pure or filled with faith or anything. That's what grace means. And not only are we saved by grace, we live by it as well. And we pray by it. It's only when you recognize how small you actually are sometimes and how insignificant in the grand scheme of things your life is that you can actually really start to truly feel how uniquely, beautifully, and wonderfully you're made by a creative being that transcends all of us, all things, all matter, all galaxies. That's what we believe as Christians. If you believe in God, that's what you think. You think that that's true, and the scripture testifies to that being true. But it takes a slowing down to see that in order to feel that and understand that. Blaise Pascal, he says this, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability, man and woman, but man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. So when we talk about centering prayer, what are we talking about? We're talking about sitting in a room alone, quietly before God, resting in his presence. Check out the words of Jesus. This is Jesus. Just before the Lord's Prayer that we just did, that's where Jesus instructs his disciples how to pray. He says, when you pray, pray this. This is his words just before this. Matthew chapter 6, 5 to 8. I'll read the whole thing. He says, and when you pray, don't be like hypocrites, for they love to stand praying in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray... Go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who's unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep babbling like the pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you even ask him. What some evangelicals often picture when we hear this read is closing the door, but then rifling off our list of needs, our list of things, our list of people. Are we, well, we told these people we're going to pray for them, so we've got to pray for them, and we, we should pray about this situation. You, get a, you close the door, but you're actually all anxious, right? You're like all nervous. You're all trying to get through this thing, and you only got 15 minutes, so how are you going to... And then after 15 minutes, you're like, man, I missed all these things, so then you feel guilt and shame for not having prayed for all these other things. I don't know if you've had that experience, but oftentimes that's the experience I've had when I've gone into a room, closed the door, and thought I'm supposed to pray. What a gift that text is to us. And there's space for that. There's a need for that. There's a purpose to that. 
But what if this space, the, clo- the closet, the closed room, the quiet place, is actually a chance for us to turn off the world around us, to attempt to slow down our thinking and to actually be in the presence of God and bask in that presence before we get to our list of things? What if that's the purpose of that quiet place? Well, that's what centering prayer is. That's what it is meant to do. That's its purpose. That is the method that can lead us into that. What would our prayers look like if we started out being silent rather than speaking? What if the primary end of our prayer was actually relationship rather than accomplishment? What if the primary end of our our prayer life was actually relationship instead of work and duty and responsibility? What would our prayers actually sound like if we started there? I don't know about you, but I feel like my prayers would sound quite differently when I've experienced that. My prayers do sound quite differently, don't they? Sky Jathani, he says in his book on prayer, he says, to whom we pray is more important than how we pray. And I also appreciated that because it doesn't actually downplay the importance of doctrine and of theology, right? To whom we are praying and to whom we are picturing and thinking about when we are praying actually matters. And it actually matters often more times than the method in which we are praying and the words we actually express. So then what's the barrier to sitting alone with God? When we remove all external distractions, what do we often find? Have you been there? Have you done that? And what have you found? Take all external distractions away and what do you got? You got your, your, your mind and it's so annoying, isn't it? <laughs> You've got yourself, right? You've got this thing inside of your skull that just goes room, 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 right? Nonstop, over and over, and it's this and that and this and that. I don't know about you, but when I do take the time to actually separate myself out from everything external, there's a bigger battle, isn't there? Sometimes I prefer the external because like the bigger battle is, is what's going on here and slowing that down. Oftentimes we find ourselves in the quiet place and there's no quiet there. It might be quiet externally, but man, it's all these things that have been there start rushing to the forefront. We've finally given space and time for our mind to catch up, to remind us of all the things that are on our heart and on our mind and the things that we got to do and the things that we ought to be and the things that we feel about ourselves that we're not paying attention to because we are distracting ourselves constantly. That's often what happens, isn't it? So then how is this a place of peace? It's actually oftentimes a place of emotional pain, right? Trauma and hurt and shame and emotional exhaustion. How do we slow this down? One way is centering prayer. One of our friends here at Southside, David Thiessen, he's a member of our faith community here at Southside, he says, centering prayer is intentionally putting aside these thoughts for a time by putting aside all or almost all thoughts for a few minutes. He said it's a vacation from thinking, not an invitation to lazy or twisted thinking. It's actually a vacation from it for a moment of time. Centering prayer is all about making prayer more about relationship than pragmatism and relationship with the triune God, specifically with whom relationship matters the most. That's the purpose of centering prayer. Pilkington, he says, I pray in order to give something to God, 
My prayer is the gift of my love in response to his amazing, unbelievable love revealed in Christ. And, and I would even add to his language in saying my, just my very presence in prayer, my willingness to sit quietly before God is the gift that I offer in return for his unbelievable love that's been revealed to us in Christ. Thomas Keating, he's uh, one of the kind of the contemporary leaders on centering prayer. He talks about how the act of doing prayer is the primary discipline of prayer. The act of sitting in the space with God and giving him your time and attention is the primary discipline itself. And what flows from that is often secondary, secondary to getting into that space and into that presence. So what I want to do today is I just want to close us off with a few basic steps to centering prayer. We've talked about different kinds of prayer. We've talked about intercessory prayer. We've talked about the prayer of examine. We've done a few things and we've talked about them. And today I just want to leave you with a practical, this is what centering prayer is. There's four movements to it and it is very simple, hard in practice, but it's very, very simple and basic. And you're going to be like, what even is this? This is even a thing. That's how simple it is. So centering prayer, there's four movements to the method of centering prayer. The first movement is to relax, the second is to breathe, the third is to speak, and the fourth is to repeat. So I want to break this down for us. You guys ready? Relax. Centering prayer, it works best when you feel free, when you free yourself from the distraction of things around you, and you free yourself from the distraction of discomfort. So sometimes praying on your knees is wonderful if you have terrible knees and they hurt every time you get close to them. Don't do centering prayer on your knees, right? Centering prayer is you need to find a place where you can actually just sit and actually relax. The least comfortable chair in your house is not the best place for it. Find the most comfortable chair in your house. Create a space or an environment where you actually can achieve relaxation in some way. If your kids are running around painting particularly, if you have a four-year-old who loves painting, don't try centering prayer well, your four-year-old has paint in their hands. Bad idea. It's not going to get you anywhere. You need to find a space where your kids aren't terrorizing your home, where you're not in an open concept work environment. If you work retail at the retail desk when you have a few minutes in between customers, not a good spot. You're going to be interrupted. It's not going to be relaxing for you. Find a space where you can actually just sit and feel calm, feel relaxed. Maybe that's sitting up in your bed in the morning or at night. Maybe it's finding your favorite chair. Maybe you do have a private space in your house where you actually can go shut a door and it's actually just quiet there. Good idea. Set aside your phone. Put it away. Don't be distracted by it. Don't let it interrupt. Just find that space. Create that space and you can put a time on it. 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever it is, but be intentional about it so that you can actually relax. And that's okay. You have permission to find a space to relax and I think God will be honored by that. I personally come here to the church and I sit in that chair in that closet there. Sometimes it's a little muggy in there, so it's a distraction. Most of the time, it's a pretty comfortable space. I close the door and hope nobody knocks. Usually I'm here early enough that nobody else is here, so I get to do that. That's kind of my space where I'm able to achieve that relaxing environment. Step one, relax. Step two, breathe. One of the saddest parts of our contemporary evangelical movement is the skepticism about breathing exercises. We associate it with new age meditation rather than ancient wisdom 
as spiritual practices. We associate it with Buddhism or yoga or something like that. We associate it with our Apple Watch telling us, breathe, dude. Anyone have an Apple Watch that says that? I custom mine mine to say, breathe, dude. I'm kidding, I don't wear it often. (laughs) What we've neglected is the church's rich history of monastic tradition, where some of the greatest church fathers would actually spend most of their days out in the wilderness, being quiet in the presence of God, controlling their breathing and just resting in him. It's okay to do breathing exercises. If you need to hear it from me first as a pastor, and if you disagree with me, come talk after, but I promise you, there's nothing pagan or demonic about breathing exercises, right? Breathing in, breathing out, slow breaths, relaxation, deep breaths in with your nose, and slowly out with your nose. And focus on it. Take your time with it. It's okay, you have our permission. The third step, this is the one that people sometimes get a little weirded out about, but I'm gonna explain it and I hope by the end it makes sense. Speak. But speak isn't say all that's on your mind. Speak isn't start rifling through your list of prayer items. Speak is actually one word, maybe a very, very short phrase. And the purpose of this phrase or this word is to actually bring your mind back into focus on God, on the presence of God. And so a lot of people who use this method of prayer, they just choose a single word, they use the name of Jesus, they maybe use the phrase, yes, Lord, thank you, Jesus, amen. Whatever word, whatever very short phrase you use, the purpose of it is to actually, when your mind starts racing, to be able to bring you back into focus on God. Remember that you're trying to take time out of your day to focus on the reality of God's presence. Regardless of what you think, regardless of where your face at, regardless of what doubts you have, you're just trying your best to take time to focus on the reality of God's presence. And the practice of it is actually exercising faith itself. And so you pick a word. Oftentimes I just use the word, the phrase thank you or yes Lord. And it's a means to actually trigger my mind to refocus back on God. If I don't have something like that, what happens? My mind starts going and going and going and going and going. And then it takes seven different rabbit trails. And all of a sudden, I'm up working on my computer, sending the email I forgot, right? That's what happens to me. I don't know about you. When you feel a bodily sensation, when you feel your mind running, you simply, gently, non-anxiously, non-violently recite the word that you've chosen. And then you repeat it. Not that complicated. You repeat it. You relax further. You breathe deeper. And you use whatever that sacred word is to catch your mind and to bring you back into focus. That's centering prayer. I want you to know at this church that you're welcome to do that. You're invited to do that. Centering prayer will be a gift to you. It's a great way to start a moment of prayer or a time of prayer. It's a great way to just Pray. You don't have to do anything else. The Lord knows your heart. He knows what your needs are. He's paying attention. And the primary end of prayer ought to be relationship anyway. So I encourage you to try that this week. We're going to practice it at 7 a.m. on Wednesday morning here. That may not sound relaxing to you. I get that. Um, But we meet every Wednesday morning, 7 a.m. There's a group of us who pray together right here. 
And this Wednesday, we're actually going to start our prayer time by actually practicing this method of centering prayer. And if you want to come and be a part of it and see and experience how it's done, you can join us at 7 a.m. on Wednesday morning, or you can simply follow the very basic steps and give yourself the freedom and permission to do so. Some of you guys are very duty-led. In this field, you feel guilty about taking time, 10 minutes in your day, to actually just relax and breathe and be in the presence of God. And I want to, I think I'm speaking on behalf of what the scripture testifies when I say you have not only full permission to do that, you ought to do that. It's actually God's inviting you to be with him. He wants you to know his presence and to spend a little bit of time with him to lead through the rest of your days and your weeks. A few simple tips on centering prayer. If you need to prime the pump on the character of God or the nature of God, feel free to read scripture about God's nature. Feel free to read scripture about his presence before going into it, but don't make it the central thing. You don't have to recite it. If you're actually sitting here and you're like, I know nothing about God, so I want to make sure I'm focusing on the right things regarding God, then, hey, pick up some scripture and read it and focus on things about God's very nature. Hopefully today's message will give you a little bit of food for thought this week as you think about our solar system fitting into this cup. If the galaxy is as large as North America, it's so wild. I want to encourage you today and say don't be discouraged if you find this challenging, uncomfortable, silly, or awkward, or wasteful. Don't be discouraged by doubt or uncertainty. If God is God, then he's okay with all of those feelings. If God is God, then you can just remember that your attempt to pray is prayer. Pilkington says, he says, I'm a believer, however hesitant, tentative, and riddled with doubts. He says, I pray to express my faith in God. Love that. The third tip for today is to use the same word or phrase if you're going to try this multiple times, which I encourage you to try it multiple times. Use the same word or phrase, whatever you choose. Use it over and over again so that your body and your mind gets used to that being the thing that calls you back into God's presence. And fourthly, write down your experience in a journal. Good, bad, or ugly. It's all worth paying attention to. All of it. And God can handle all of it. I want to pray. And then I want us to um, take a moment. And then I want to sing with you. Lord, I am... Um, you guys can stop the music just for a second. I just... I am still struck by... Um, I'm struck by the vastness of this world that we are a part of. I'm struck by the... It's so, it's so amazing how the smallest things can mean the world to us, and then when we look at the size of the world, we can feel so small. It's such a weird dynamic, and it's a weird contradiction almost within us, Lord. I'm struck by that this morning. I'm also struck by, um, if these images are true, which I think they are, and, um, and the world and the universe that we live in really is this big of a place. I am struck by the reality that you know my thoughts and my heart and my prayer, that you hear that, that your presence is here in this room with us right now as we're gathered here in your name. 
If you're God, you created all things. You've been before all things. All things have come from you. You've existed eternally. If there was a big bang, it was your work. And yet you know us. You love us. You lead us. You've intentionally created every single one of us uniquely. You nudge us by your spirit. You have plans for us. You have intentions for us. That's just amazing, God. I pray for our church this week that your spirit leads us into places where we can actually just focus on you and and sense your presence and feel it. Wherever that is, whatever we're dealing with, great or terrible, I pray that the body of Christ here represented at Southside this morning has a chance to be with you and that you, I'm asking you, to lead each of us into the spaces that you want to meet us in. Show us where our closet or our room with a closed door can be. Provide us that gap in parenting that we need for this. Relieve our hearts and our stress and our angst about getting one more thing done. Give us the peace to know that you are ultimately in control and we are not. Like, just keep knowing us with that this week, Lord, so that we can find ourselves in your presence and actually feel peace and know that we're loved.